Doherty, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. Clears it away to Doherty. Doherty going in against Floyd. For the layup, it's good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty, he is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Welcome to the Rebound Podcast. I'm Matt Doherty and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we focus on the topic of leadership and overcoming adversity in an open and raw kind of way. We discuss failures and how to rebound from them. I became passionate about leadership after being forced to resign from my coaching job at North Carolina in 2003. I went on a leadership journey, realized that may be the most undertaught topic in formal schooling, yet the most important. With me today is Frank Viola, former Major League Baseball All-Star and World Series MVP with the Twins in 1987 and won the AL Cy Young Award in 1988. Frank was part of a game at St. John's versus Yale with Ron Darling in 1981, considered the best in college baseball history. Welcome, Frank. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Oh, man. It's, it's so good to have you on. It's an honor. Um, just a little background for the, the audience. Frank and I grew up in the same hometown, East Meadow, New York, which is a suburb of New York City, about 30 miles from Manhattan on the South Shore near Hofstra University. Uh, Frank also was an excellent basketball player, and uh, we played against each other in high school. I think you were a senior and I was a sophomore. And uh, I think you had 28 points on me, uh, and I'm still a little bitter about that. (laughs) Yeah, but what what people don't know is that we finally got to the point where we could go up against the holy trinities of the world. That's where Matt went to school, and uh, they were an elite basketball program at that time. So we were good enough in our senior year to be able to play. And uh, what Matt just said is I scored a lot of points, but what he didn't say was I think we, we, we stayed close throughout. We only lost by like five or seven points, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So as good as I did offensively, uh, my defense wasn't too sound. Uh, I don't know about that. But anyway, (laughs) that's great. It's really cool and so proud uh, of your career. Obviously followed you very, very closely. Um, And uh, it's really neat. You had a great Hall of Fame career. And here I am, typical New Yorker. I'm going to ask you about your biggest disappointment as a player and how you overcame it. Well, first of all, I don't think I would have become the player that I became without some disappointments, without failures along the way. I think that's the best learning tool anybody could ever receive, is going through trials and tribulations and being able to bounce back from them and and, and go forward in a positive direction. So that being said, there was, there was a couple, but I was blessed, Matt. I got drafted out of high school. Uh, by the uh, by, the uh, Kansas City Royals and turned it down because I just wasn't mature enough, in my opinion, to handle. I'm still not mature enough, but I mean, to handle the outside world. So I decided. And St. John's came along and gave me a, a, a scholarship offer, so I was able to get you know three years of education under my belt and go to a great program and stay at home. So I got to live in East Meadow for an additional three years, and then got drafted by Minnesota after my junior year. 
and that was after the Darling game you mentioned, so on and so forth. So everything was pretty much handed to me, and things went really, really well. Well, from that point on, I got drafted, went straight to Double A. So once and won the championship with the Double A team, and was involved in the championship winning game. I got the win in that championship game. So I mean, you talk about a, a, a career that's taken off on a pedestal. Everything was going well. Mm-hmm. Then, then reality set in, and here's the failure we're talking about. Uh, the Twins decided they wanted to go into a rebuild. So they got rid of all their veteran players, and they brought us young kids up to learn on the job. Uh, it's a wonderful thing if you're able to persevere through it, but mm-hmm. it's also a humiliating situation because every time you go out there, you feel like the, the world's coming to an end because you know you're going to lose, or you, you just don't know what you're doing, where you're going. So... Uh, I guess I can't cry too much because I was learning in the big leagues, which a lot of people can't say. But there was somebody within the organization that said, you know what, instead of sending Frank down, let him keep going. Let him do this because I feel he's got that intangible that he could able to, he's able to work through it. Now, let me segue this by saying if I didn't have a dad who listened really well and worked with me and, and, and heard me out, and then a wife a, a, a little bit later at, at that year who put up with me and my crap and my complaining. I don't know if I would have been able to work through it because of everything on the outside would have been different from when I got to my job. Anyway, one day I just realized, you know what, this is ridiculous. I'm here for a reason. And my pitching coach came up to me before I start. And his name was Johnny Padres. He was a great pitcher in his own right. But he came up to me before a game in Seattle. And I'm and at this point in my career, man, I'm 11 and 25 with an over five ERA. I have no business being in the big leagues. And this is pretty much do or die. So he sat me down and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do today. Your catcher is going to call the pitch. You're not going to shake him off. You're going to throw that pitch. He's not going to move from the middle of the plate. The whole game. He's not going to move. You're going to hit his glove. And I look at him going, like, my career is not bad enough. Now you're going to put me in this situation? Well, long story short, eight innings later, I gave up two solo homers to Richie Zisk, walked off the field, no walks, six strikeouts, 6-2 win. And as I'm walking off the field at the end of the eighth inning, my pitcher coach with a big smile on his face said, what did you just learn? I said, I guess I'm pretty good. He goes, no, you're damn good. You just don't understand that you're your worst enemy. And from that point on, my career took off. I had confidence. I knew somebody believed in me, and I started believing in myself, and the rest of the career spoke for itself. Oh, man. There's so much to unpack there. Uh, I just yeah, I gave you a lot there, Matt. Oh, I gave you a lot. Yeah, like you gave me the whole buffet. You know, I feel like uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm at Borelli's walking through the, the buffet line. Uh, I want a little this. I want a little that. Like the fact that, I mean, I think that, one thing, I work with corporate executives now, and, and you see people from the outside, and you see a big, tall guy like you, you know, who was a great pitcher at St. John's, who's drafted. You think that the guy's got it together, right? And, and what we talk about in, in, in some of these workshops is the imposter syndrome, You know, like, am I really that good? Am I worthy? Mm -hmm. Am I, should I be standing on this mound? You know, people are going to start to see that I'm a fraud. I'm not really Mm -hmm. that good. You had that feeling? At at times. Yeah. You know, you feel like a mental midget at times. It's like, wait a second, this game is not that difficult. I'm making it real difficult. But then you take a step back and you go, you know what? This game is difficult. 
You know, it's like, you know, and you talk about following careers. I absolutely loved watching your career. You know, when you went to North Carolina, got the opportunity to play with Michael Jordans of the world. So, I mean, you, you talk about the greatest of times. Your stories of I'd love to sit down and just hear all those stories all over again. Well, we'll have to. But I'm just saying, but, yeah. but, but I'm just saying what, what, even Michael struggled. I mean, you know, stories that he got cut in junior varsity or whatever the case may be. People doubt themselves at any level, at any time. And and I'll tell you what, I might be tough as hell looking when you look at my career on the mound, but I doubted myself. Mm. I mean, the night before, the night before, I had the uh, irritable bowel. I mean, I, I was a nervous wreck the night before. My whole career. Really? Every start before every start. I really? Was, yeah, because you're just questioning to doubt yourself a little bit. But then once you get on that, once I got on that rubber, once I got on that mound, it was my mound, and I was a totally different person. But it was just getting there that was the hardest. Once I got there, I was fine. How did you get there? Who, who, who was there to help, or what kind of self-talk did you use to manage <laughs> the mindset? Because the mind can really be tricky. Yeah, no question. Well, first of all, it was my family. They all believed in me. And, and, and then, when, as I said, when you have people in the organization that feel a certain way about you, all of a sudden you start feeling that way about yourself. It's like you have to you have to win people over before you win yourself over. Sometimes, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I I just felt. I guess the best thing, the best way for them, I felt like I needed to be wanted. Mm-hmm. And I think once I realized people wanted me and liked me and needed me, all of a sudden I liked and needed myself. I never liked myself a lot growing up. I mean, I, I had self doubts about myself all the time. Really, I, I really did. Uh, you know, I, I, not to take anything away, but I mean. We're old school, Matt. Right. My dad, when he spoke, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't talk back. So I kept a lot of stuff inside that I really would have liked as I was growing up to be able to spew out. You know, I, I don't, I don't like what you have to say, right? I don't believe, I don't think, I don't think you're right, Dad. But I never said any of that. And I think as I got older and got into the real world and started being responsible, I still didn't question some of the stuff I stood to question, and I think that hurt me along the way as well. Really, you know, mm-hmm. what were some of the things? that, you know, you wish you could have pushed back on as a kid? What were... If, oh, just, just you know, Dad saying, you know, uh, you know you're not doing this right. And then I, instead of explaining myself, hey, this is the reason why I'm doing it, I just said, yeah, you're right, Dad, and I just walked away. Right. So, I, I, I you know, it was nothing major, major catastrophe. I mean, you know, God, you know, yep. Dad's looking down at heaven from now on. And he was a good dad, but he was also a domineering dad at times. And it was very frustrating to be able to get words in edgewise, you know, when you didn't have that opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, if that's the worst thing that I've ever had, you know, in my relationship with my dad, it wasn't too bad. But I would have liked to be able, able to be a little more outspoken at times just to get things off my chest. Because you keep everything inside. That's not the best thing for you either. No. How, how... <laughs> How has that impacted you as a father? Because you have three children, if I if I'm if I did my research Correct. accurately. Yep. So you have two daughters uh, well, and a son. I, I listen a lot better now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hear them out. Uh, I do have my dad syndrome somewhat uh, at times. It's like I'm very short with them, as in their earlier years. Mm-hmm. You know, as they gotten older, our relationships have gotten so. I, I mean, we were, we were always close as a family. Don't get me wrong, but. Being a baseball player, as you know, being a basketball player, coach, so on and so forth, you're away from the kids so much, and you miss so much of their growing stages. Uh, I always felt like I was playing catch-up with them and trying to become that dad that I wanted to be from the start that I wasn't able to be. Mm-hmm. 
but my wife, you know, my wife Kathy is 37 years. I mean, if I didn't have her, I, I don't know where I'd be in this world. I, uh, I'm not giving a kudos just to give a kudos. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's wonderful mom, wonderful wife, wonderful everything. She, she's kept this family together all these years. But that being said, I think, to, to, you know, go back to my career a little bit, just to give you a little heads up. In 1994, I blew out my arm. I had Tommy John surgery uh, when I was pitching for the Red Sox. I tried coming back for a couple of years, and I was the type of pitcher that could have continued on if I wanted to, but it would it would have taken a little time. Mm-hmm. And at that point, my kids were 12, 9, and 8, Frankie, Brittany, and Kaylee, and I figured, you know what, this is time. I have to become the dad that I never was. And I walked away from the game. How, and, how, you, know, how, you asked if how, you had any, you know, yeah. if you have anything that you'd like to take back in your life. Right. I think maybe I would have hung on a little bit longer if I would have known now what I know then as far as money increases and contracts and so on and so forth. That might have given us a little bit better situation later on in life, which I'm learning. But I mean, if that's as a, once again, if that's the worst thing, you, you, you turn your career, you, you trade your career for a family. I would take the family every time. And as I was mentioning to you earlier, I'm getting away on a tangent, but you know, we're still very, very close as a family, and that's the most important thing to me. How old were you in 1994 when you had Tommy John surgery? 34. 34, yeah. And it was at the end of my my contract with the Red Sox, and if you remember correctly, 94 was the strike lockout year where there was no World Series. Mm -hmm. So I had no team to work with or to work out with. I was basically coming back from Tommy John on my own, and I'd never had an arm injury before, so it was all new to me. Uh, I just didn't. Do it the right way, and you know, fortunately, my arm's good. I can still go back and practice today. So, I mean, as far as that stuff goes, I'm okay. But it would have been nice to be able to. I think I ended up with 176 wins in my career. 200 would have been nice if I would have held on a little bit longer. But once again, if that's the worst thing I'm going to complain about, that's not too much to complain about. No, no, no. But it's hard. Um, it's hard because they're constant reminders. I, I talk, uh, I just came out with a book, Frank, and I'm, I'm going to send it to you whether you want it or not. But uh, <laughs> it, it's called Rebound from Pain to Passion. And I talk about in the book triggers and I, I talk about driving over the bitter river. And as we drive over this river, we we pay a hefty toll. There's no guardrails. The wind's blowing. It's a winding road. And something can trigger you um and and then you want to drive off the road and and go into the river and for me it's you know north carolina wins a national championship um or a a coaching contemporary of mine signs a five million dollar a year contract for five years guaranteed and and are there triggers that you have to deal with that you see, well, I should have, I could have, or, man, I was better than that guy, if only if. Any of those types of triggers? Uh, uh, Maybe not only as a player, post-playing career, but maybe now as you're being your manager in in the minor leagues. I think that that part of it, absolutely. Um, And, yeah, they're all over the place, Matt. I agree. I I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way of putting things. I mean, when you you explain that right there, the Bitter River, I mean, boom, that hit me right there. I I understand fully what you're talking about because I was there. I lived it in certain ways as well. But I I don't have any dread. There's nothing in in my playing career that I really would uh, say I was bitter about because I always was treated fairly. 
And whether I did poorly or did well, it was me that did it. So I had nobody to blame but myself in that regard. So really, no bitterness in my playing career. It was after my playing career that there are some things that I would like to have had an opportunity to do and seen changes in, you know, especially in the coaching front. You know, when I mentioned earlier about taking those years and basically rebuilding my relationship with my kids and my family and stuff, I took uh, from 1996 when I retired to 2004 off totally from even thinking about anything affiliated, pro, anything like that. What I did was I went and coached at uh, Lake Highland Prep in Orlando, Florida, which was where my kids went to school. So I was the varsity baseball coach there for eight years. Mm-hmm. And I got, it was a wonderful time because I got to spend every day seeing my kids and, you know, had a pretty good program. But I also traded in a lot of years of, um, if I would have kept on going, if I would have retired as a player in 96, but they were right into the coaching field, I think I would have had, if I fast forward everything, a lot more opportunities to become a major league pitching coach, which was what my dream was when I got back in the coaching and affiliated ball. And just so you know, in a roundabout way for the viewers and stuff, after I did the high school ball, I did three years of collegiate summer league in Leesburg, Florida, so I was still at home. I got to that point where all the kids earned their scholarships and went their separate ways and did their own thing in college and stuff. And at that point, my wife, Kathy, looked at me and said, you got to get the hell out of the house. You're driving me crazy. <laughs> You, you, you just you just got to go. So, well, for, you, you know, you, you're wonderful. I, I love you, but you know, you just need that, that time alone really helps both of us. I think. Anyway, so I, I got back to I went to the winter meetings in Orlando that year in 2009, and I interviewed with the Mets, and uh, I guess the interview went well because they hired me as a pitching coach in Brooklyn to start with. And over an eight-year period, I went from the pitching coach in Brooklyn to pitching coach for two years in the South Atlantic League, which is Class A League. Then I ended, made the jump to AAA in Vegas, where I spent four years as a AAA pitching coach there. So the Noah Syndergaards, the Jacob DeGroms, the Stephen Matthews of the world, those are the guys that I had with me for a couple of years at different levels. So you know, I'm feeling pretty good about myself finally as a coach. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing something positive for these kids. I live this life. I'm, I'm helping them develop a special mental part of the game because, as you know, sports is so much mental. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm feeling pretty good. And, you know, the Mets decide to make a change here, change there, change there as far as pitching coach goes. And I never got an interview and never had an opportunity. And that was kind of, that was my bitter pill to swallow in my life because I really wanted to have that opportunity to see what I could do as a big league pitching coach. Because, you know, I, I, I had numerous pitching coaches that I loved. I had a couple of pitching coaches I couldn't stand, and I really believe I knew how I could help these players, but it never came to fruition. And I guess if that's the worst, once again, I, I'm not complaining, but I mean, for that bitter river, that would have been it because now, you know, I'm happy. I'm working at home. I'm working with the High Point Rockers in the Independent League. Uh, I'm going back and forth to my house after games. I mean, I'm loving life. But that would have been one thing I would have liked to have lived in my life. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that trigger you know when you see a contemporary who you feel you were maybe as good as or better than and he's got this major league job and you see him walk to the mound and you're watching the game and you're like damn you know how do you manage that trigger and not go off the the bridge into the bitter river well the the easy way for me is i just don't watch baseball anymore (laughs) i mean honestly i don't watch baseball really 
I don't like where, you know, and, and this is not because I didn't get the opportunity. Don't get right. me wrong now. It's the direction baseball is going with the analytics and all the other stuff. You know, you, you know, basketball is using everybody, every sport's using it. Yeah. And I know there's a place for it, but you, the guys who are teaching it and dealing with it are the ones that never played the game. Right. You got to have some guys who have been there, done that, because your eyes, my, your eyes as an ex ball player and as a coach, my eyes as an ex ball player and a coach, we see things that a guy who's never played the game doesn't see. And I don't, I don't need paper to know that, yeah, that's been rich, not great. We can work on that. Uh, that kind of stuff, I guess that's what's frustrating to me and, and seeing that. Being the next starting pitcher, seeing that starting pitchers now, if you get to the lineup for the third time, they're looking down in the bullpen to get taken out of the game because they're not good enough to handle the lineup the third time. That kind of stuff bugs me and eats at me, and I, I decided, you know what, my best my best pill to swallow is not to watch the game because it doesn't frustrate me as much by not do by by not watching. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I, mean, I hate to say it. I hate to say no. it because I love the game of baseball. You know. But I'd, I'd, I'll take a football game, a basketball game, any day right now over baseball because of that fact. Yeah. Well, that's how you and I got reunited, sitting next to each other at a Davidson basketball game. And, uh, yeah, it's really, really uh, cool. I miss those games. I, I, I can't wait for the fans to be able to get back to the games. I miss that, Matt. Right. No, I know. I know. Frank, you talked about you had some good managers some good coaches and some bad coaches, not to name names. But what did the bad coaches do that you saw as a player that, you know what, if I get to coach, I'm not going to do it that way? I think first and foremost, most most importantly, I guess that's the best way of putting it, you have to know as a coach the individual psyche. You can't lump a group of guys together and say, I'm going to treat everybody the same because everybody's different. And it's those coaches that took the time. I'll tell you who my favorite coach is to this world, not coach but manager, but Tom Kelly was the best at it. You know, he won the championships. He was a Twins manager in 87-91 when they won the World Championship both those years. He was my double-A coach when I first came to affiliated ball, so I knew him right from the beginning of my career throughout my first nine years with the Twins. But Tom Kelly had a unique way of being able to separate the player and the person. He treated the player like the player. He treated the players like players. But off the field, he treated the, per- the player like a person. And he, and he knew my family. He knew my, uh, you know, if I, there was a time in my career, and I'll be I'll be first one to share with you, I had a little bit of a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talk about ways to relieve pressure. Mine was drinking. And sometimes I went overboard. And Tom was there to say, hey, dude, slow down. You got a family back home. This is mostly on the road, but I mean, stuff that, uh, you, you know, you, you have to have somebody basically watching over you. And he took the time and the effort to know me as a person and know when I was having a bad day and know when I might go off on the edge. And, say, and before the game, he says, hey, be careful. You know, before I go out, he goes, hey, be smart. Don't be stupid, so on and so forth. And I think that's why I was able to live the life I lived because of people like him who helped me along the way and got to know me. The, the poor coaches matter, the ones that, they don't take the time. You know, they treat you like everybody else, and, and you can't put everybody together as a group because everybody's different, as I mentioned earlier. So I think when I became a coach, I thought that was my most important thing was get to know the person first and then integrate that with the you know, with the player because if I know the person and, he, and the psyche is not there, I'm not going to go yell at him in front of the team because I know he's not going to be able to handle it. That's mm-hmm. when you take him, pull him over to the side and say, hey, I don't like what's going on right here. Or you got that one kid that says, hey, 
you know, he's that big show-off type of guy, and every once in a while you got to put him in place. That's the guy you yell out in front of the crowd and say, hey, this, this is this is what I'm seeing, and this is what's got to stop. You know, you just got to know each individual personality, and I think that's what makes a good coach uh, the difference between a good coach and a bad coach. Yeah. That's uh, emotional intelligence. Um, I didn't know the term emotional intelligence till I lost my job in 2003, and I went on a leadership journey, and I'm sitting in a class um, in, in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, and they're talking about emotional intelligence. And as I go through this class, I'm going, my God, if I would have learned about these types of things before I became a head coach, I might still be the head coach. Mm-hmm. And um, is there any formal training, leadership development in Major League Baseball for young coaches? I couldn't answer that. I, I, I'm sure there's avenues to take. I just do not have an answer for you. I, I, I'd like to think there are. Mm-hmm. Because these coaches are getting younger and younger, and they're more like, I mean, they're, they're the age of the players now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, the respect, see, the thing that scares me about the game today, and, and, and I think I can say this for most big-time sports, is at times the coaches aren't coaches anymore. It's like they're, I think the player thinks he's more important than the coaches and everything else. You, you see that when you have the hardens of the world saying, I want to be traded. Right. What happens? They trade them. You know, in our day, we said we wanted to be traded. They look at you and say, hey, tough it out, kid. Let's go. You know, I think the player player today and the agents are the worst thing for the sport and the fact that they're too outspoken. Just go out there, uh, live with your contract, go with your contract, go with the team, make the team your best you can, and if, you know, you you get traded, you get traded. But don't cause an – I just – it bothers me when they have all these issues of – I'm in charge, and, you know, I don't care what you guys say. I'm going to work the street. Like, you know, I hate to say it, and I understand why, but, I mean, the Deshaun Watson situation in Houston right. with the Texans, that's going to be really interesting how that plays out. You know, it's that kind of stuff that, you know, does coaching have a lot to do with it? Absolutely. But it's more front office and the agents that have a lot to do with it that much more because you're giving the players that much more power in today's game. Yes, yes. No, it's more managing personalities uh, than you're Correct. Teaching the game and developing talent and the strategy, the X's and the O's and the the the, the pitch counts and you know, um, yeah, I I I I agree. Uh, people, oh, oh, an assistant coach, longtime coach, uh, Gordon Chaser in the NBA said it's basketball is a beautiful game, crummy business. You know, I could see that. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, the lifespan of coaches are, are very short, and you're really not coaching. Uh, you're managing personalities. Um, okay, you're a dad. You talked earlier about maybe you listen better. You've had a daughter who's an Olympic diver. You've had a daughter who's a volleyball player at Winthrop and now coaches at Davidson. You've had a son who was a baseball player, Frank III, who suffered Tommy John surgery. When they deal with setbacks and failure, how does Dad Viola talk to them? Well, mostly, I, I believe the most important thing is you have to be there to listen. And after you listen, and some of them, sometimes the kids, and it's just like my wife as well, I put her in it. Most of them just want to vent. 
Mm-hmm. And I want to be there to, to be there for the venting so that they can get it out of their systems. So they don't take it outside the house or they take it somewhere else where they're going to regret what they say or what they do. So I think the one thing I've learned is I've I, I really become, as I've gotten older, a real good listener. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I, I don't say much. You know, if I have to say something, I will say something. And if it has to be stern, I will, I will say it sternly. I will say it to my kids. I will say it to my grandkids. Because I think that's a role that everybody has in this world. But I like to listen more than anything else, Matt, because I've been through so much, good, bad, and different, that I think by just listening, you could just, and, you know, sometimes, as I said, they don't want an answer. They just want to be able to get it out off their chests. Mm-hmm. So you just want to be there for them. And I think that's the most important thing. If I go, if I, if I die tomorrow, I just want people, I want my family to know I was always, I tried to always be there for them. I might not have been the best but I tried to be, and, and I, I think that's all anybody can really ask of you of themselves. Mm, yeah, I, I I'm a fixer, and so my my wife used to tell me she'd she'd vent, and then I'd try to give her an answer, and and she'd be like, "Wait a second, I don't want an answer." <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. I, I don't want you to fix it. I'm like, oh my gosh, you don't want me to fix it? You just, you know, complained about something, and and they, like you said, and it, it took me. Now I'm 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 be married uh, 30 years this May, and it took me t- about 28 <laughs> 28 years to figure yeah. that to figure that out. No, I get it. I get it. Right? And, you know, I like that though. The fix up, I like that. Yeah, I was. But, f- you know, here's here's the other story. Here's the other, if you got time, I just want. Uh, no, to we've got we've got plenty of University, time. University of Minnesota volleyball coach. He just passed away a couple of years ago from uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's, and I can't think of his name. It really bothers me because he was such a great coach. But he started out as a male coach in volleyball and other sports when he was going through the coaching regime. Uh, University of Minnesota came along and said, we want to start up the girls' volleyball program there. And he's like, girls? I don't coach girls. And so on and so forth. Anyway, he ended up 25 years coaching there. was one of the greatest coaches ever. And his name's eluding me. But he told me two quick stories about going from men's coaching to girls' coaching. And I know you'll get a kick out of this. He said, number one, the first time I got on the bus to chew out the girls after a bad game, they started crying. <laughs> and he said, he took a step back after talking, and he, and he went back, and he talked to his assistant coaches and said, that wasn't a good thing, was it? The lady <laughs> assistant coach looked down and said, you learned your lesson right there. He said, you can't yell at these girls because they you know, they're emotional, so on and so forth. So this takes me to the second point. He said, then I, got, then I, then I found my niche. And he said, what I did from that point forward was, if I had something to say, I would count to 10. And at 10, I would repeat that to myself and say, is it worth saying, will it cause trouble? And he said, I became a better person, a better coach, a better father, a better husband, because I took that approach and realized, you know what, a lot of the things that come out of your mouth in the, in the spur of the moment, if you look back, are really the stupidest things you say in your life. Right. So I've tried using that. And it does help. I mean, I still say stupid stuff. I still do stupid things. But it has helped as far as my relationships with my family because of that. So I appreciate him for teaching me that lesson. It's a great lesson. Uh, it's a it's a great, great lesson, uh, Frank. I think that uh, um, if anything, our listeners take away from this, and there was so much, um, it would be 
to think before we act. Um, and I follow a gentleman on Twitter and um, named Tim Kite, and he talks about what you just mentioned, basically. E plus R equals O. And I think when we can label something, we can manage it better. And E is the event. So E might be, you know, the volleyball coach just lost and he's emotional and he's getting on the bus. Uh, R is our reaction and the O is the outcome. So the event occurs, how we react equals the outcome. And the only thing we control is the R. That's all. And so the better our R, the better the outcome. So by that coach counting to 10 and, and being patient enough, like hitting the pause button, tapping the brake, and that's so hard for us as males in, you know, growing up in the 70s on Long Island. Because if you waited to react in the schoolyard, you would be considered a punk, right? Like if somebody yep. said, oh, Frank, you're stiff. Frank, you, you, you're a loser. And you just sit there and thought, well, let me think. Is this going to be a wise thing for me to do? What should I do? And if you don't go at that guy, oh, Frank's, Frank's a, he's soft. He, he, and you get no respect. So yep. now as you get older, as a manager, as a player, as an adult, as a father, we've got to change the way we're wired. And tap that break. And, and, and sometimes it feels weird, like, oh, man, we, that guy just said something about me, and I didn't go after him. I'm going to be viewed as a pump. No, 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 no. There's now strength. And it's funny because I, I watched The Godfather the other day for the umpteenth time, and Michael Corleone is so calm when somebody says something. And it's those calm guys that are just kind of looking that you got to be worried about. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sonny, Sonny would fly off the, sh- the handle, and he got himself killed because he was, didn't control his emotions. Michael yep. controlled his emotions, and that's what got him to the top. <laughs> but that's life, too, Matt. I mean, that's a wonderful life lesson as well. Yes, 100%. Because as a, as a player, you want to win. You want to win everything. You want to win the argument in the playground. And you don't have to win every argument. Yeah, but it's it, it, it's grooming your ego to understand that. It's hard. Because our egos, uh, an athlete, uh, uh, I mean, not just an athlete, but I mean, speaking as an athlete, an athlete's ego is huge. And it's got to be, it's got to be milked, it's got to be sued, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. There's so many different ways you could approach it. And, you know, you get to a point where you feel like, hey, I'm on the pedestal looking down at everybody else. I don't need any of you guys. And then you realize when that pedestal is taken out from under you, oh, man, yeah, that's not what I expected in life. And those are the ones, the ones who are able to take that jump of faith after the pedestal is taken away from them and learn and deal with it. Those are the ones that are successful in life going forward. Yeah. Amen to that. That's a great way to to end here, Frank. Frank, if people want to follow do you, are you active on social media at all? Um, I, I do Twitter. I do not very much. I do a lot of uh, my wife tweets and I retweet. I do a lot of retweets mm-hmm. for my kids and my wife. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. you know, I'm on Twitter. Frank Viola. I don't even know what it is, to tell you the truth. I don't know how to but that, and I, my son put me on Instagram. I don't know what the hell. I'm computer illiterate. I, I am not real good with electronics and stuff like that. That's but I a, am on Twitter and I am on Instagram. And uh, 
you know, if anybody wants to say hello, I can respond when I when I get to answer. I don't look at it often yeah. enough, I guess, in today's world. Well, I, but, I appreciate We've learned a lot. To me, uh, if we want to take a couple of things away, I, I think the thing, one of the common thing theme in a lot of the stuff we touched on was listening. Listening. Yeah. And I would say to players, listening is a talent like running and jumping. Um, but listening more for empathy as a leader and and not judge. Just listen. Right. People need... You know, the, you know the, the one thing, though, that the kids of today have to... You know, listening is utmost important, and I agree with you 100%, but the kids can listen, and if they don't like what they, have, what they hear, they can always let it go out the other ear. But hear the person. Don't, don't talk over them. Don't think you have the answer before they finish what they're saying. Hear that person, because... You will, for the most part, take more positives out of negatives when you do listen and listen the right way. Amen. Well, leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you're a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. I appreciate you joining us on Rebound, the podcast with Matt Darty. Special thanks to Frank Viola. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at Darty Matt.